So welcome to the Everything Marketplaces podcast, which is the audio version for group chats that we have with marketplace founders and leaders for the Everything Marketplaces community every week. So I'm your host, Mike Williams, or some of you might know me as Yoromi from Social. In today's episode, we're going back to share one of our popular group chats that we had with Pete Flint, who was previously the founder of Trulia and is now a partner in FX, which is a leading venture fund that we, of course, all know of in the world of marketplaces. So this is a really great chat with Pete, where we got to learn more about his experience starting and scaling Trulia, what some of his key learnings were that he's taken with him to now investing, did an overview of NFX as a leading venture fund, got to learn more about what they look for in marketplaces that they invest in, discussed some specific trends and opportunities for marketplaces, and also had a great group Q&A. So really enjoyed this chat, and you're going to find it a great listen to the end. Now let's get into it. So Pete, welcome to the uh, group chat. And as I uh, mentioned right before we started recording, you know, you're one of the uh, most requested group chat guests since we first started the community. So, you know, this is a real treat to have you join us here today. And I first off want to start by saying, you know, huge thanks for uh, taking the time to do so in advance. You know, so I'm really excited to chat about marketplaces with you and uh, go back to your uh, operator days at Trulia, then also now on the investing side of NFX. You know, before we jump into things, I think it might be great if you can start off by sharing a little bit more on your background, though, for uh, those that don't know you that well. Yeah, of course. Um, well, first, it's great to be here. I've been following on Twitter and elsewhere the community, and um, it's terrific. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, I wish you around um, 10, 15 years ago. Um, and so there's a tons of tons of insights and knowledge. Um, so, yeah, I mean, very briefly, my the accent is British, faded a little bit. Um, so I was born in the UK. Um studied physics and then got i got involved in the internet pretty early on um so late 90s mid 90s um so i was interning and decided on graduation that i would join an internet startup in around 97 um which at the time was a you know in the uk was definitely a crazy thing to do um but i just was fascinated by the internet um and I guess my I, I sort of think of my my career in sort of three um I really only had three jobs. Um uh the first one was with a company called lastminute.com, a big web 1.0 travel marketplace, um, which <clears throat> I just it was hugely beneficial and 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 great and amazing learning environment. So that was like we launched in ninety-eight, we went public about eighteen months later. Those were the crazy times. Um, and then the real work started in um, 2000 with the dot-com implosion and then September the 11th with the the um, uh, 9-11, um, uh, you know, decimating the travel industry. And then in 2003, I moved to Silicon Valley uh, for graduate school. And then, uh, and then 2004 started truly. I so did that for 10 years. Um, and then after that mode with Zillow, <clears throat> um, teamed up with James and Giggy, uh, and now Morgan and Omri to get NFX go. So that's been the last, that's been my third job, I guess. So, and they all are around network effects. That's the kind of, um, to two big marketplaces. Um, and, um, and now investing in the net selling marketplaces. Yeah, that's some uh, pretty incredible experience. You know, I, I definitely want to go back to uh, to Trulia. Um, but, you know, I guess uh, before we do, uh, you, you know, what uh, particularly drew you to network effects in our marketplaces? Well, I think, I mean, it's easy to sort of, um, 
you know, perhaps sort of retrospectively say, yes, I kind of like studied Metcalfe's law and I kind of had this sort of like, I went back in history and looked at the marketplaces in ancient ancient world and Greece and Rome, and that was going to be, you know, I want to create the model equivalent. The reality is quite different. I, you know, I kind of, you know, for for last minute, it was like, well, you know, I thought the first areas of, of innovation were going to be um, in goods, which were virtual, essentially ticketing goods, so digital goods, um, of which ticketing was one of them. Um, and and then you kind of, you're in these industries and, and you sort of see these um, kind of early fragile businesses. And, you know, both these cases, whether it's last minute or truly, like, you look at these and like, there was a period of time for several years that they felt incredibly fragile. Um, that we were like, okay, we are just surviving, and that you know, post September 11th, we were just surviving post the global financial crisis and the housing meltdown. And then you came out of those and like, holy smokes, um, kind of we really built this liquidity and density in the economic engine, and it became almost unbreakable. Um, and you and I and when I've spoken to other founders in all these marketplaces, whether it's um, Airbnb or Uber or Lyft or others, it's like they they were like, yeah, we we were just trying to solve a problem, um, and we thought about network effects, but we didn't really kind of understand them. And then at scale, they kick in. You're like, whoa! And so really, after you know, you know, I'd sort of. From last minute, it informed a little bit of the strategy for Trulia, but then you come out of Trulia and like, I'm not doing anything other than network effects. I mean, like, this is this is like if you, you know, if you have a, um, you know, the the sort of the data is really clear that um, if you get it going, it can be hard to get it going as we know. Um, then it becomes so resilient and so powerful and. The principle behind these is really that it creates winner take most or winner take all outcomes, um, which is, you know, if you're building a company or investing in companies, then those are the ones that you want to invest in um, or you want to build. So that was it. Um, uh, I was hooked. And so uh, and so decided to, to dedicate my career, the rest of my career to network effects. Yeah, certainly. So, uh, you know, not many uh, people can say, though, that they've uh, IPO'd a, a marketplace. That's, uh, that's that's quite incredible. You know, so going back to Trulia, though, you know, what were some, like, I guess, the uh, key learnings from your time there that you've then taken with you to, uh, you know, NFX and investing in marketplaces? I actually think if I dial it back a little bit, I actually probably learned more from lastminute.com in, in many ways than than Trulia. Um, you know, and I, and. It was early on in marketplaces and, you know, it was a success, but it was, um, you know, I kind of look at, so last minute.com was acquired by Travelocity in 2005 for a little over a billion. Um, and then, you know, and it's, that was an amazing European success story. But then you look at the other company in the space, Booking.com, that was acquired, that was, I didn't, I haven't looked recently, it's probably gone down a bit, but, you know, that was worth, Hundred billion, not long ago, um, and the uh, you know the lessons from that just you know it was sort of fascinating because last minute call was 
doing so many different things. You know, everything at the last minute was the idea. So flights, hotels, holidays, entertainment tickets, restaurants. Um, whereas Booking.com really did just one thing and did it extremely well. Um, and it did it in, an, in a really attractive category. Um, so what I mean by that was when you look at, you know, I, and it's a real clear example is like the two primary lines of business at Lounge.com were flights and hotels. Flights, we made like, um, you know, a buck, a, a dollar a booking. Um, the sort of margin on that, because it's large commodity, um, world was, was de minimis. Whereas hotels, you know, it sort of varies on the, on the company, but it's, you know, it's 15 to 25% margin on those. And so the, and the sort of characteristics between flight industry and hotel industry is like hotels are generally non-commoditized. Um, they are, once you stay in one hotel, you often want to stay at a different hotel um, because you, unlike flights, we're like, you know, I know what I'm going to get with uh, United or whoever, and then start, I'm going to stick with that because they lock you in. Um, uh, whereas hotels is quite different. You're sort of somewhat promiscuous. So non-commoditized, um, which means high margin, sort of promiscuous, which means you keep coming back to the marketplace. Um, they are um, highly fragmented when you look at the number of airlines versus the number of hotels chains or independent hotels. It's like several orders of magnitude difference. Um, so those were kind of some of the the key lessons. Plus the you know the the um, rolling out the tra a travel market across Europe was a nightmare. Local regulations, local insurance, local employees. It's like it was a real struggle. And so, and so when, so in some ways, like going from last minute to truly, it's like we want to do things completely different, differently. We want to do, okay, how do I focus an industry which is highly fragmented, um, which was real estate? Um, how do we think about it? So we had, you know, a team of six people and we could be nationwide. You know, unlike in Europe, we'd already licenses. So we didn't get into the transaction. Wanted to basically become more of a media model, so we didn't need to be licensed in every state. Which, in 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 uh, in travel, used to be need to be licensed. So high scalability for what we wanted to do, and then you know high, you know these are high margin products that you know whatever you think of real estate agents, they work hard and they make a lot of money. Many of them do, and so it's like there's a high margin, there's a high margin opportunity for. Um, uh, in this category. So that was a little bit of that, the kind of background plus a million other learnings through, through that process. The other, the other thing to know is that I, my, my role at last minute was, you know, you'd probably call it today kind of head of growth. Um, so I was the person that was responsible for, um, for growth at, at last minute. And that was just a incredible training. Cause you look at these marketplaces and the stuff that we like to invest in those that, really have figured out the growth mechanics um of the, the business and so like so i i mean i'm a student of growth is what i spent my kind of like when i wasn't when i wasn't ceoing um i was like the head of growth at, at trulia and so i'd be as obsessed with that on the supply side and the demand side and the thing that we really look for is just um what is a novel approach to growth 
both on the supply and demand side. And that's, you know, that's just critical component of what, um, what I look for. And, um, and then also somewhat what we can help with as well, because we have some sort of expertise in that area. Yeah, that's uh, really great. So thanks for uh, sharing more with us on that. Um, but, you know, as you did mention, uh, you know, what you look for right now at kind of NFX, um, I'd love to jump into that. Maybe, I guess, start with like uh, overview of NFX um, and then what you look for as far as in uh, marketplaces that you invest in. So NFX stands for network effects, if you haven't figured that out. Um, and um, so we and we're focused at the seed stage. Um, so there's everything from pre-seed to regular seed to big seeds. Um, we just really like this seed stage because it's a, fundamentally about finding product market fit. Um, we're comfortable with some ambiguity around the business. We've invested in, you know, two founders in a garage to a team of 20 people with, you know, um, hundreds to millions of dollars of revenue a year. Um, and the, the stuff that kind of sets us apart is that one is that we are exclusively focused at the seed, seed stage. If you want to work with NFX, your only shop is, um, pre-seed or seed. We don't sort of, so we, we'd like to have a sort of high conviction. We're kind of in at the earliest stage or we're out. We don't sort of track you and say, maybe next round. Um, we really like that high conviction. And then we're a team of operators. So. Um, we've all founded companies, scaled them. So we, you know, with that comes, you know, some of the empathy, um, to know what it's like to be in, to be in your shoes, as well as the, you know, operational tactics that we can help with. And now in effects is something like 60 people. Um, you know, we have a platform team with help with fundraising and marketing and recruiting and all those pieces. Um, plus we publish a fair amount and we build some software tools. So we kind of, we try and we think of ourselves as really just this four pillars to NFX investing the platform team to give you an unfair advantage. We do a lot of publishing. Um, and then finally, um, software, we build a bunch of software tools. So kind of think these things are crazy that they're not drinking or practicing what they preach about software and data and automation. We really, you know, while our, while our work is very, um, human based, we, um, we really, you know, have a software platform that we use internally and some software tools externally. So things like signal.nfx.com is one where you can find, um, they'll find help to match make you with particular uh, investors and then um another one is called Brieflink, which is kind of percent for fundraising it's a specific tool for fundraising yeah so someone actually just shared a brief link in the uh, in the community the other day and uh signal shared quite a bit too so have a lot of users here in the uh, community with the, some of the marketplace founders um you know so uh so, so you did mention you know pre-seed and seed stage so you know like what what does that kind of look like today as far as you know with like the landscape is uh you know as far as um you know your check size and kind of uh, valuations I think the last six months were kind of, you know, a bit frothy, but I think it's sort of, you know, pre-seeds are typically, you know, certainly less than, you know, I'd say around sort of one, one and a half million, maybe two, um, uh, anything from 500k to sort of 2 million. Um, and then seeds are, 
um, you know, anywhere from sort of two million to five million. I think that's probably the kind of like, and those that's where we typically go. We sometimes go higher, sometimes go lower, but that's the kind of thing for us. And so we and we take an active role in companies. So we're not a like I said, we're really a high conviction seed investor. So we don't say, okay, here's here's a small check, we'll catch up, you know, in the next round. Um uh we uh you know, we generally are sort of all in, all or all or nothing at that investment. Are are you guys a lead and uh take a board seat or yeah, we lead or co-lead every deal. So we're very um and it's you know, it's the board seat is sort of less of a kind of a strict requirement, but it but it's um you know, some founders like, well, let's just keep things casual. Others like, no, I really want a structured board and you want it. Um so we're um it's really, you know, we don't we don't look for board seats to have control. You don't you don't really have control, but it's more just a way to be help most helpful to the company and stay in the loop um, about what um what the company is doing and how it could be most helpful. So uh you, you did mention uh as as far as you know the past six months as far as kind of being a little bit crazy right now uh, you know with the market. Um so you know you've been through uh through a time period with truly in the past you know 2008 quite the time uh, to, to be uh, building a, you know, marketplace kind of in the housing market. So, you know, I'd love to uh, chat about, you know, kind of given everything going on like today and uh, kind of some of the, uh, some of the factors, like how you kind of think through and there, maybe even, you know, talking with uh, some of your portfolio company founders on, you know, how to think through what we're going through. Yeah. I mean, we've sort of been drifting down for the last four months and so, and it builds in the last, couple of weeks it's kind of like okay yeah no this is not um a sort of like negative sentiment this is sort of negative reality um and um you know the way that you know the framework that that i use um and uh we wrote about this at the sort of at the pandemic about two years ago was really thinking about it in three buckets um so one is really um uh, kind of a being real with the challenges you have. Um, and, and that you could think of this as sort of playing defense. Um, and so that means, you know, it's going to be very hard to raise money, um, in the, or harder to raise money, um, in the foreseeable future. Um, and you know, if you don't have great traction, great product market fit, then you really have to focus on your cash position. Um, and so really, and thinking about, okay, how do you, how do you optimize your cost structure for the go forward plan? And this is, you know, probably this is most typical for kind of, you know, the defense is where you have, um, potential losses, right? You're kind of like serious seed a b company already have funding already have cash um but really just being real the old plan is the old plan there needs to be a new plan and you need to kind of accept reality and just be singly focused on the cash position and make sure you give yourself time to be able to you know either become profitable or to be in a position where you can um raise the next round of financing and financing is getting done you know they're getting done we close, we're closing deals every week. Um, you know, the venture markets are called off, but they're not shut down. Um, 
The second piece is um, really leaning into the opportunity, so playing offense. Um, and, you know, it's sort of, it's been, it's been said many times, you know, I think it was like Chesky was, um, was tweeting like, uh, you know, the best time to build a company is in the downturn. That's true. It sure doesn't feel like it. Um, so it's really hard. Um, but it is true. Um, that's, you know, everything's cheaper. Um, less competition, but most importantly, in these sort of economic shifts, there are typically, and particularly for marketplaces, there are supply and demand imbalances. So, I mean, we saw it sort of very, very clearly in the pandemic, like everyone was at home um, and they were looking for substitutes for their kind of normal activity. So Instacart, DoorDash exploded in volume, Peloton exploded in volume, and that, you know, some of them capitalized it on, I think, extremely well. DoorDash um, and Uber Eats, kind of most principally with with food. Um, and then used that to, to build a scale in their marketplace that continued through. Um, and you you are, you know, where there's this change, there's this opportunity. Um, and so if you look at these, these market shifts, they typically are kind of, you know, in in a normal economy, there's supply demand balances. New marketplaces, existing markets crop up that basically look to match supply and demand. If you suddenly have a massive seismic shift in the economy or geopolitically or something else, then you, you see this supply demand imbalance. And so marketplaces can come in and try to kind of try to match that new supply or that new demand in a more effective way. And that, you know, very quickly can give you a, a tactic to solve the chicken and egg problem, the cold star problem that you can, you can utilize very quickly and very efficiently. Um, it's amazing the velocity at which things explode. I mean, we, you know, Clubhouse being a sort of example exploded, but then it, you know, fizzled, um, uh, you know, but that, but things can spread very, very quickly when there is when you have this supply demand imbalance so that's just being you know being opportunistic and being aggressive um because you are you know that as a as a as a startup your single best um your, your single strongest tactic is your speed and you have no real incumbency challenge or innovative dilemma you can look at it and say like well i'm just going to go over here and um, this is where the opportunity is. I'm going to hibernate this old business. This is the opportunity. I'm going to attack it really hard. And then the incumbents are typically, um, you know, too slow or just not able to react to the reality. So that's the, you know, the second piece and really being, um, uh, being opportunistic and playing offense. The third piece is really about managing psychology. Like I said, it's like it's easy to say these are the t- best times. Just really feel like that. Because you're, you know, you're running on fumes. You've just let a third of the team go, or whatever it is. You're like, um, you're worried about not making payroll in next month's time. It's like this is really hard. And so, really thinking about how do you manage your own psychology, how do you manage your team's psychology, and you need to up your uh, up how you think about that. 
um, from a communication perspective, from a culture perspective, um, uh, from a personal perspective, because it's um, it just got a lot harder. And so um, uh, that, that's the framework. I wrote a, I wrote this article, which maybe someone could send around the chat, but um, I think it's twenty eight moves. Um, and uh, in our pre chat, you were saying like, how how would that be different? Like, what, what, what you know, what would be it? And I was reading through it a couple of weeks ago, just because I was feeling the tea leaves, and um, I don't think I don't think that different. Um, you know, that the, I don't think there's that much difference in that. A lot of the the perspectives from this were born out of um, pre-pandemic um, economic shocks, like um, the one in two thousand, the one in two thousand eight, um, and while there's a lot of references to pandemics. Or pandemic, um, you know, they're really about um, how um, how to navigate those experiences. From what I'd seen in the portfolio and also elsewhere in 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 um, in two thousand two thousand eight, I guess one of the differences it feels that, um, and we'll see where it ends up. But it feels like, um, uh, I mean, I vividly remember and. Uh, there were a couple of like major catalysts for kind of, um, you know, in 2000 and 2008, and you saw kind of the Lehman collapse and the stock market go down massive amounts. Um, and you saw in, in a dot com, the dot com collapse. Here it seems to be like multiple, um, uh, multiple fires going on at the same time, um, and no kind of like major shock. Um, which you know you could see yourself out of it. You know the pandemic was really severe, but actually economically quite short-lived. Um, whereas this feels like it might be longer and more complicated. So um, you know there's war, there's inflation, there's rates, um, there's oil. Um, uh, you know I'm not a macroeconomist to really know how it's going to end up, but um, I. Th- I was surprised how quickly things came back in 2000. I'm probably feeling less optimistic. This will be, this might be more similar to kind of 2008 and its longevity, um, or sort of 2000s, 2002. Sorry to be the negative Nelly on this, but I think um, uh, I think that's just the reality of where we are. Cool. So we're going to jump into questions here. Otherwise, you and I could probably just uh, keep chatting through some things. And we have uh, some questions here from some founders. Um, so I'm going to go through some uh, that we had on the uh, Google Doc. Hey, uh, Rich, did uh, do you want to jump on first? Yeah, sure. Hi, P, uh, fellow Brit here. Um, I'm an ex-marketplace founder, now a fintech founder. And I can't help but see the similarities of maybe it's the growth hacking and the way to kind of kickstart our products. How are you seeing the lines between fintech and marketplaces blurring? Um, and do you see one as an enabler to the other or a product set that sits on top? Yeah, good, good question. I think, you know, we've written um, um, about what we, our thesis around fintech enable marketplaces. And so, you know, some people call it embedded fintech. Um, but really, you know, the, the general observation here is that um, you go back, through the sort of history of marketplaces from Craigslist, kind of the original, or eBay, which we're doing very horizontal, but sort of lightweight transactional. 
Um, so they were getting less involved in the transaction, but doing multi-category. And it's really evolved into, you know, from a verticalization, so picking up verticals, being well documented about picking up Craigslist verticals, into going deeper into the transaction. And you can, you know, extrapolate where this is going that typically to get deeper into the transaction, there is some sort of fintech component because you're dealing with the money um, and or financial products in general. So, um, and, and it does feel that there is this relentless journey towards a better product experience or that better user experience and getting closer and closer to the transaction. Um, and so fintech is a sort of big enabler of that. And so we look really for companies that can deeply embed a financial services component into their product experience to transform that product experience. And often, you know, that can um, manifest itself in um, greater take rates or increased margin or greater product experience, which draws people in. And so we see this being not applicable to everything, but many things. Um, there can be there can be opportunities there. So that's and that's enabled by this sort of new set of fintech infrastructure, you know, from Stripe back, you know, through to you know stuff doing um, credit checking and financing and insurance, all these you know API layers there. So from an investment perspective, we're looking at you know we look at both the sort of platform business that can enable the next set of marketplaces with um, with um, adding that fintech product in, and then the uh, and then also marketplaces that can um, marketplaces that can incorporate these things things in. It is it's you know one of the sort of conversations that we have with the portfolio is like should we build this ourselves or should we be partnering with other people? Um, and it's like, and I think there are ambitious founders that think they can build this themselves. Um, and there are kind of many of this, like, why on earth would we build another Stripe? Um, uh, so we, why, why would we build this other FinTech and project? And I think the, the sort of the conventional wisdom now is that it's, it's better to partner than it is to, um, to, to build because the, the marketplace's dynamics are complex enough. And then the underwriting models and risk profiles, extremely difficult. You know, I I um I watched how Zillow got into iBuy um with great fanfare and then basically lost their shirt and um five hundred million dollars getting out of their business. So I think you know, Zillow is terrific at building software. Um, driven marketplaces, but in terms of buying homes and renovating, was um, buying homes and renovating was just not their core business, not their DNA. Um, and so, uh, and so, I think the, I think now it's you know it's clear it's much better to to partner, and even Amazon's doing. Amazon's partner with a firm. You think Amazon really literally could do anything? The resources behind their organization, but they choose to partner. So. <clears throat> That's you know quick summary of just how we think about it. Um, in certainly in the near term, that we have this relentless rise to greater product and greater focus on the transaction. That's awesome. Thank you very much. Awesome, great question, there, Rich. Hey, uh, Kenny, do you want do you want to jump on really quick? 
Hey, Mike. Hey, Pete. Thanks for the time today. Uh, my name is Kenny Hanson. I'm the founder of a company called Mentor Pass, which is like class pass for startup advisors. And uh, my question is around the supply demand changes through a downturn. Um, in a market like this, what you would expect to see is demand side probably pulls back as startups and companies get a little bit tighter with budgets. And on the supply side, you have a lot of people that are now looking for a side gig as their portfolios tank and they say, oh, I can make $500 an hour advising startups. This is a great side gig for me. Um, I'm wondering if you have any specific tactics or strategies that you've seen uh, be effective in managing that supply demand shift uh, with an economic downturn. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's hard to be um, precise on the business, but the sort of principles that we think about um, are the following. So the, the classic proven um, framework for building marketplaces, pick an industry with proven demand and then use technology to unlock new supply. So, you know, hotels, um, you know, let's, let's use technology so people can rent out their room um, and hence Airbnb was built. Um, Uber and taxis, you know, again, using technology to unlock. So it's often much easier to, to be in a category where it's like, you don't need to create new demand. Um, you are literally leveraging, um, this significant pre-existing demand. And then again, using technology to unlock, unlock that new supply. They could be just matching or access or something else. Um, so that would be the the kind of core principle. The other the other thing to do is often in these economic downturns, um, the transactions can be quite episodic, and so the more you can um, maintain the um, stickiness on both of those area on in a supply and demand, if possible, the better it is. You know, example from. Um, you know, from the truly experience that like no one was buying houses in 2008. Um, so we're like, um, there's no demand. Um, but that said, there was a ton of supply. Um, so the tactics for us was like, okay, on the one hand, on the supply side, we would like, we would integrate into the databases, the MLSs of the real estate industry and get, you know, near real-time feeds of their inventory. Um, so they were desperate to find incremental marketing channels at lower cost. So like, well, here's a platform, just upload your feed and, um, and we'll market it to our millions of users for free. You can buy some premium products, sure, but basically like, and once it's integrated, they're not, they're not coming off because it's free um, and, the, and the homeowners will hate it and the agents will hate it. So we, we integrated the database and it was, that was incredibly sticky. And then on the demand side, um, sure, people weren't buying, um, but they were looking. Um, they were interested because they were like, you know, how much is, what's going on in the market? How many foreclosures? This is awful. It's like, you know, it's very voyeuristic. And so we would be um, pretty aggressive on getting people to sign up to emails and say, okay, if we're not, if they're not going to buy, they are watching the market and we're going to, you know, do a lot of the sort of like, um, you know, the, um, 
unlock features if they added their email address and registered, um, send them new insights on emails, but other stuff that might be on the area. So we so we end up building this massive, massive email list over that period. Um, and then as things kind of bounced back in 2009, 2010, we were like, okay, people were like looking for bargains. And so we would, um, we would you know, literally send out 50 million emails a week um, uh, to folks. Um, when there's 5 million transactions a year, that's a hell of a lot of emails. Um, and so we were able to basically, so, so thinking about you're in this lockup supply, um, try to lock up demand and try to basically be front of mind when things do come back. That's a great question. I'm glad we uh, got to jump into, you know, Trulia and, uh, you know, you know, how you kind of thought through that a little bit more too. So, Hey, uh, Laura, do you want to jump on? Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Um, Hey, Pete, my name's Lara Vandenberg. I'm the founder of Publicist. We are a, we're a SaaS-enabled um, labor marketplace in marketing. My question is really specific to market networks and kind of getting the three functionalities right. Um, so we have a marketplace slowly introducing networking features for our supply and also have a SaaS tool. My question to you is really around chicken and egg with those three functions and have you seen or can you point to to a use case of someone that's done it really right because i know you obviously need to focus on like network and marketplace before you get to the SaaS. but any thoughts on just the dy- the winning dynamic there yeah i think that's a good good question i think where we see i actually would say the SaaS um component is um increasingly critical i think you kind of you know, it's um, standard marketplace playbook to really go after like, how can you have embedded SaaS to build scale? Um, they enabled liquidity in the marketplace and then overlay networking on top. And the networking can be, you know, is that, can that be embedded in the SaaS component as well? Um, but I I think the, you know, increasingly the, um, the SaaS component, as companies really look to digitize every aspect of their business, if you can build a meaningful, high-quality SaaS um, product, then that can give you that can give you that stickiness, and then also give you the economic engine for other things. So if you're able to monetize that SaaS tool um, and have high retention and really hone that, then it gives you the, the platform to to do more in other areas as well. Awesome. Thank you. That's a good question. So good uh, questions about uh, sequencing. So, hey, uh, Matt, do you uh, want to jump on really quick? Thanks, Pete, for taking the time with us today. Really appreciate it. Nice to meet you. I'm Matt Barron. I'm the founder of Gear Focus. We're a photo and video marketplace. So we've modeled after Reverb.com. Uh, in fact, I have a couple of their alums with us. And my question is a two-part question. So we're in a seed raise right now, and the number one question that comes up is, are you profitable? And do you feel that marketplaces need to be profitable eventually or an exit play? And can you bridge those two together to build a financial moat around the business? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I guess it's sort of profitable on an absolute basis, on a company basis, or profitable on a unique economic basis. There's clearly a shift right now um moving away from you know 
contribution margin negative businesses, you know, I think typified by the quick commerce, the go puffs and, um, you know, that, that world, which I don't know the economic profile of them, but intuitively feels pretty hard to be contribution margin, margin positive, given the competition out there. So there's definitely been a shift towards, um, you know, unit profitability, unit economic profitability. So I would, you know, but I, but I don't think you necessarily need that today, but it's a hell of a lot easier if you are. Um, and then if you are not, then charting a path to like, okay, how can you get to be um, positive contribution margins in the near term? Because um, these things are not, and, it, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, accounting in here, which um, some investors are, are more or less sophisticated and some founders are more or less sophisticated. So do you include all your absolute sales costs? and marketing costs in this and servicing costs of your supply and demand. Some do, some don't. So it's a little bit, it can be hard to, to really dig into it. Um, but the number one question is not really about, uh, I mean, uh, can you be profitable? The number one question should be is, can you be number one in a norm, in a enormous market? Um, and, you know, as a marketplace investor, I'm not interested in, um, partner with founders that are, um, have a profitable small business, um, you know, interested in partnering with founders that build a category defining big business. And as you know, the, you know, definition of network effects, the more people use a product service, the better it gets for other people to, to, the better the, the product experience gets for other users. If you are not number one, um, then it's, um, uh, then it's practically, it's it's very, very hard. You mean number one or number two, Uber and Lyft coexist just fine. Um, but number three is kind of non-existent. Um, and so I really, that's, can you be market, can you be a market leader? And th- your market doesn't need to be huge. Um, but as long as you are number one in a modestly sized market, that's, that's most interesting. Excellent. Thank you so much. I'll be unpacking that for a while. Hey, Pete, I actually have a question for you myself on that. Um, you know, so are there like a few kind of questions, maybe one or three questions that you have to kind of evaluate, uh, you know, can this founder build a category defining marketplace? So one of them is, is um, what do you know that other people don't know? Um, and, you know, this stands from the kind of the observation that most successful startups are somewhat con- contrarian, contrarian and right. And there's a lot written about this stuff on the web. So really for you to be a breakout success, you need to think differently from other people or have an insight that not many people have. Um, and so that's, you know, that's fundamental, um, to starting a, uh, a successful business. The, you know, the other, the other component, which is critical is like, you know, my background is really on, um, growth side of marketplaces. So how do you just really, how do you unlock that uh, and attract supply and demand? Um, and what is the noble tactics and how, how does that really work? And really it's both, you know, it's, um, sure you can say it's proven demand, but, um, you know, I need to get supplies like sure, but 
you still need to attract demand. Um, you know, you still need to be really, really good at demand. You don't want to manufacture demand, but you need to tap into that demand. Um, so really thinking about, um, you know, the, the real granular details around um, growth hacking and or not growth hacking, but growth marketing and really that supply demand acquisition. <clears throat> and then the probably the third thing to really build an enduring company is the team and culture. You know, who are the, who are going to hire next? Um, you know, with this raise, talk about the team, what's missing, what's important, why is that what you need? Um, setting a high bar for people you hire, being thoughtful about the culture and foundation. Um, time and time again, we see that the the correlation between founders recruiting really great people post we've invested correlates with significant long term success. Uh, and so, if you you know very simply, like you can hire, give me some LinkedIn profiles. Like who, who you know, what kind of profile you're looking for? Like why is that? Um, who's next? Um, and if you're if they you know have an impressive people that they're talking to then um you know that's a great predictor as well that's great that's uh, probably going to make a i'll make a highlight clip for that and uh, post it in the community uh cool so we're going to try to get in uh, one more question if we can um hey maxine do you want to jump on thank you um thank you so much for your talk um my name is maxine i am unlocking a new category which i'm calling knowledge commerce for the masses um, and my question loops back to your general um, insight on where the economy is going that you think it's going to turn down while being an investor in marketplaces that can unlock a lot of value really fast. Um, and so like watching these companies unlock, even Airbnb unlocking this unused asset and adding, making it into a marketplace, NFTs unlocking more exchange on the internet, Bitcoin, et cetera. Don't you think that that will supersede the old system of falling down with inflation and costs? Like, aren't you seeing that where you're at, that that's just going to over kind of come this downturn in the economy? Do you think, you know, what, yeah, can we create that value as marketplace founders that are category leaders unlocking new forms of commerce? Just comments on that. Yeah. I, th um, I think it's, uh, I think I think there's very, certainly something now. I mean, you see what in downturns people will kind of shift from fixed labor costs to variable labor costs. So they often kind of reduce some external spend, but also will kind of find, um, uh, you know, find new new labor sources and or knowledge sources to um, to solve problems. So I think there is a, you know, you. You can find some demand um, through this period. People look to kind of rationalize some of structure. I think that one thing that um, we've done, we've done a fair amount of labor marketplace. I don't know if the, what you're doing exactly kind of labor marketplaces, but one of the observations in these marketplaces is that the participants can be very, very fickle. So, you know, the what we call multi-tenanting. So they can just think if you're a worker, you're like, I will go wherever the money is. And if I'm a, an employer um, or I need that, I will go wherever the talent is. And so they can be very, very fickle. And that, that you know, manifests itself in supply and demand side churn. 
which can be really destructive in terms of the underlying economic profile of businesses. And so what we've seen in these in these platforms um, is that where they've been able to really deeply retain the participants in those businesses. So is there a SaaS tool potentially for companies that says, okay, this is this is a tool that I'm using literally every day or every week to perform a task. And so and it and it also gives me access to these knowledge workers or this this level of, of talent. Similarly, is there something for the workers themselves that enables them to build a sticky presence, you know, deep profiling skills, you know, ongoing training, um, you know, knowledge management or, or skill development. So really, I think that the matching is um, is great. And that's probably the economic engine. But if you don't have the um, high, the really sticky tools on both sides, then it's really hard to build a profitable marketplace uh, in that in that kind of area. If I, and again, if, I didn't, I don't, you know, I don't understand the business fully, but just generally speaking about this kind of labor and talent marketplaces. Awesome. Thanks. That's a, that's a great uh, kind of question to wrap things up. So, uh, so Pete, wow, this is a really great chat. So, you know, um, I definitely once again, want to say thanks for taking the time to join us here. It was uh, really awesome. Um, you know, I did have a, a question I wanted to uh, kind of wrap things up with, which was, you know, what do you, uh, what do you think that we'll be talking about in the next few years in the, for the world of uh, marketplaces? Good question. Um, I'm so, sort of calibrating the, the um, uh, what's going on in the economy. I, I think, I think some of the kind of more, you know, some of the probably more interesting stuff is like how is a web three technology is gonna um, gonna be embedded into marketplaces? There's, um, you know, when you think about this sort of transition from um, horizontal marketplaces, vertical transaction, and then and then financial, and then ownership. I think it's going to be very interesting how kind of Web3 technologies permeate marketplaces. So that, that seems an obvious evolution. So I'd say that is that will be a key component of, of whatever happens in future marketplaces. And it's remarkable, right? There's not just transactional side of things. There's how do you incorporate smart contracts, token economy, um, both the Kickstarter marketplaces and then reward participants. Um, that's probably the single biggest thing we'll be we'll be chatting about in the next five ten years. Yeah, certainly. We actually have a, a dedicated uh, Web three and uh, NFT uh, kind of marketplace space, and uh, you know we've had the uh, founder of uh, Brain Trust, and then uh, we've had some uh, OpenSea uh, on also. So those are great, fascinating case case studies. And now is probably the time, you know, when things are a little bit down. You know, some of this stuff might not be funded, but um, the, they will come out in a very, very strong position, I suspect, when this is all over. Yeah, thanks again for taking time to join us. So, and uh, also too, I'll share uh, links to, uh, you know, to you on Twitter and uh, some of your awesome posts here on the, in the community and the, on the recording of this too, so. Awesome. Thanks, Pete. Thanks everyone for joining in the great questions. So thanks for listening to this episode and making it all the way to the end. As mentioned, our podcast is the audio version of our virtual group chats that we do for the Everything Marketplaces community with Marketplace founders and leaders every week. If you're a Marketplace founder or team, you can check out the community and request to join us at everythingmarketplaces.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please also leave us a review. 
You can also find the video versions for all of our group chats over on our YouTube by simply searching Everything Marketplaces. See you next time.